now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this special episode of the IPTI season, recorded live in Crystal City, Just Science covers the panel titled Statistical Approaches to Forensic Interpretation. Moderators for the panel were Dr. John Morgan, Just Science host from RTI International, and Dr. Jose Almoral, professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Florida International University. Prior to this recording, panelists gave presentations during the symposium on various statistical topics, including reality check, what is expected from expert witnesses, presented by Dr. Stephen Lund, challenges faced by experts when communicating forensic evidence to triers of fact, a statistician's view, presented by Dr. Hari Iyer, the use of similarity measures, scores, to quantify the weight of forensic evidence presented by Dr. Cedric Newman, statistical analysis in forensic science evidential value of multivariate data presented by Dr. Daniel Ramos, the anatomy of forensic identification decisions, rethinking current reporting practice in a decision theoretic perspective presented by Dr. Alex Biderman. If you would like to watch their presentations, you can find them on the FTCOE website at www.forensiccoe.org. This season of Just Science is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to those of you listening at home through the podcast. My name is Jose Almiral. I'll be co-moderating this morning's session with John Morgan. It is an honor and a privilege to be here for this event and this morning session. We have five excellent presentations from thought leaders in the field of statistical analysis and evidence interpretation, which is the topic of this morning's session. And so it's my pleasure to introduce the first speaker. Steve Lund is uh, double majored in physics and mathematics at St. Olaf College and earned a PhD in statistics from Iowa State University. He joined the statistical engineering division at NIST, where much of his work has involved model uncertainty and statistical forensics. Steve. Uh, thank you. The next speaker is Harry Iyer. Dr. Iyer earned a PhD in mathematics from the University of Notre Dame and a PhD in statistics from Colorado State University, where he was a professor for 30 years before joining NIST in the Statistical Engineering Division in 2014. His research work also includes model uncertainty and measurements and statistical forensics. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. The next presenter probably doesn't need an introduction, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Cedric Newman was awarded a PhD in forensic science from the University of Lausanne for his work on multivariate analysis and interpretation of evidence, ink evidence. He has worked at the Forensic Science Service in the UK and at Penn State University, and he is now Associate Professor of Statistics at South Dakota State University. His main area of research focuses on statistical interpretation of forensic evidence. Thank you. Our next speaker is Daniel Ramos. Dr. Ramos is an Associate Professor at the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid and his research interests are focused on using robust likelihood ratio models 
in a variety of disciplines, including voice comparisons and forensic chemistry. He's also interested in the validation of these models. Uh, hello, everybody. Thank you very much for inviting me to the organization of the event. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Daniel. And our last speaker is Alex Biederman. <clears throat> he is an associate professor at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland in the School of Criminal Justice. He obtained a PhD there in 2007 and until 2010 worked as a scientific advisor in the Federal Department of Justice and Police in Bern, Switzerland. He's completed postdoc stays in Italy, the UK, Australia, and the US. His current research concentrates on formal methods of evidential reasoning and decision-making at the intersection of science and the law. Thank you very much for this kind introduction and the opportunity to talk on this panel. Thank you, Alex. Where is Dr. Morgan? I have a question from online. All right. And I think it's pertinent. It's one of the questions that we discussed moving into this, and that is, how would an expert explain what Bayes' rule is? Many people struggle with math and statistics. So without explaining and possibly training the jurors, are we sure they would know how to solve these equations? This especially goes with Hari's presentation, where he's asking the trier of fact to actually come up with a likelihood ratio, which is, as you said, impractical. So in these contexts, how can we, I mean, I've been looking at these presentations for years now, and there's oftentimes when I'm listening to you all even this morning, I'm like, I can't really reconcile these five presentations. I'm not sure it's even possible to reconcile these five presentations. All of us in this room are probably more sophisticated than a juror is going to be 10 years from now by a long shot on these matters. So how is it possible that we're going to both reconcile these issues and explain Bayesian theory and these other considerations to triers of fact that in a way that is going to be comprehensible? Anyone want to try that one? He mentioned your name, Harry, so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, take, Harry. Take a, take a stab. <laughs> it's an easy one. So what was the question? Okay. <laughs> Assume I'm a jury, I'm on a jury, right? I'm gonna be, I'm yeah, sitting here. No. You're a statistician, come explain Bayesian theory or explain even just simple likelihood ratios. How is all this complexity gonna be reduced in a way that's comprehensible to a trier effect? So I didn't claim that it, it will be comprehensible. <laughs> I'm just- That's a problem. <laughs> I was trying to explain my understanding of what the Bayesian approach is, which is for a decision maker to follow the Bayesian reasoning, starting from prior arts, evaluating likelihood ratios, and doing the posterior arts, and use that in making their own decision. That's the way that I understand how Bayesian theory works, okay? But what seems to be happening or being proposed is that the forensic expert will assess a likelihood ratio, which is their likelihood ratio, and explain or try to convince the trier of fact that that's the weight of evidence that they should use. And I don't know what happens after that. And to add to that, nowadays, some of the European organizations have proposed converting the likelihood ratio to verbal statements and then use that. So even though I think I understand the theoretical reasoning behind proposing to use likelihood ratios in testimony. I don't see how 
it's practical. I'm willing to be convinced by any of the other folks that see a way. So, if I may, um, it struck me that every single speaker said the following words. This is hard. This is difficult. This is not easy. Every single one. And, you know, just because something is hard doesn't mean we should not do it. And if it were easy, we would have done it by now. I've been at this for a long time, and we've been talking about it. This conversation is excellent, though. This session and the session that's going to happen this afternoon gets us closer to solving the problem when we start to present possible solutions, and that's what I'm hearing today. One thing that I wanted to say also is that it would be not prudent to believe that now we have a method mm -hmm. because we can calculate likelihood ratios and put all the focus on calculating likelihood ratios. Mm -hmm. We should continue to explore ways of communicating value of evidence or communi communicating the evidence to jury. And if Bayesian method is going to work, they will have to do the assessment of weight of evidence. Okay. We have a question from the audience. Please identify yourself. Dridge, RTI International. It's not a new question. I'm actually following on to what John brought up and started this discussion with. I think that perhaps when we're getting caught up in putting this burden on the jury and asking how we can expect them to understand all of this math, I think that we are overthinking the process quite a bit. Um, because the way I see it, we're not expecting them to do a formal analysis of any sort of likelihood ratio or Bayesian reasoning or coming up with priors or coming up with posteriors. I think what we're doing is we're trying to find a way to describe in a coherent manner what they're already doing subconsciously. They're coming to the trial and they are hearing something in opening statements and they're forming an opinion about whether they believe this person is guilty or not. And then they hear another witness and that person adjusts their prior opinion. And then they hear another witness and that person adjusts their prior opinion. And that's going through this whole process of prior new information posterior, prior new information posterior. And then they come to a point where they're stuck, right? Because there's this scientific evidence and they don't know how to process that themselves. That's the, actually the definition of the role of the expert. That's why we come in, is because they've reached a point where they don't know what to do on their own and they need someone's guidance who knows more about it than they do. So the expert comes in, and going back to what Hari said about the expert can only testify to my likelihood ratio, that's true, but the juror doesn't even have one. So I come in and I say, well, look, this is my field, I've done this comparison, I've made these observations, and I've reached my likelihood ratio, which I'm going to share with you in an attempt to fit it into your cycle of updating the information you have. The key to all of this is that when I'm presenting my likelihood ratio, I need to be very transparent about how I reached it. I need to say, this is what I observed, this is the weight I put on what I observed, this is how I reached the conclusion I'm sharing with you today, and then the jury has the choice to believe me or not believe me, put weight on what I've said or put less weight on what I've said, and that's still going to feed into their cycle. So I don't think we need to say, listen, juror, I'm going to give you a two-hour lecture on likelihood ratios and I want you to do the math for yourself. I think we just want to say, here's where I'm inserting myself into the process of what you've been doing all along. Yeah, okay. So you're going to offer your likelihood ratio and say I'm the juror. I happen to know you, but pretend that I don't know you. So I'm going to ask on what basis am I going to take your likelihood ratio number? Could I speak with other experts? Would they give me the same likelihood ratio or will they give me different likelihood ratios? Yes. 
And I agree with you that it's highly likely that they will give you different numbers. My contention is that as long as they're able to be transparent about where they got those, or maybe not numbers, maybe they're using a verbal scale, as long as they're able to be consistent with, this is what I'm presenting to you, this is why I'm presenting it to you, and this is how I got it, then the jury can evaluate it in some logical way of, I believe you, I don't believe you, I think you're making this up. They're going to do that the same way if we walk in and say, I'm 100% certain, just take me at my word. I'm not comparing the two ways of communicating. Steve and I both talked about we still don't have a very good way of communicating the evidence to the jury. And some people believe that likelihood ratio is a good way, but the juror doesn't have an assessment of how reliable your reported number is. One way of helping me decide how much weight I should put on your number is for you to tell me or for there be a way for me to find out Five other experts came up independently with likelihood ratio values, and they are ranging from 10 to 10,000. If that's the case, I will not put much value on any one of them. But if they are independently giving me very similar numbers, then maybe I, I feel like, okay, now I have some useful information to judge the value of what you just gave me. Yes, and in a theoretical world, I think that's very true, that if you had five experts and they had a, a very wide range of opinions, then you as a juror would be quite right to question where that range came from. In the real world, typically there's one expert, or perhaps two, and so I, I don't think we're going to see the situation where they're saying, well, one guy told me this and another guy told me something else. They're just dealing with the one guy who's there, and it's incumbent upon that person to present the evidence the best way they know how. So now we are coming to why I put up some of the Lindley quotes. Lindley Bayesian said, yes. don't take my word for it. You don't believe anyone. Okay, that's number one. The other slide that I put up was results from an interlaboratory trial. NIST is well recognized, but you're not necessarily going to take NIST value for a measurement. But if you know that all these different equally capable labs are providing very similar results even though they don't agree. The disagreement is small enough that for my purpose, any one of them will work. Then I have some assessment of reliability of the number being offered to me. And that's what I find is lacking based on what you're saying. I think your expectation is that I should just trust you. Definitely not. So if I may, I've, the panel has convinced me of two things. I'm not pleased with either one. I actually was already convinced by Cedric before of the limitations of score-based methods, okay? You're basically taking all this wonderful raw data, you're boiling it down to a single number or two, and you're throwing away a huge amount of information and hoping to rely on that as a judgment, right? You've proven it mathematically, but it's going to have problems, right? You might be able to account for it, as, as Daniel Ramos says, and you might be able to use it still, but it's going to be a limitation. The other thing, and this conversation that Heidi and Harry just had, convinces me of the other problem, and that is that basically, as, as Stephen Lund started off with, you have to understand where your model is, right? Your assumptions that go into how you develop a likelihood ratio can radically change what your result will be. And my fear is, because when a forensic examiner goes in to testify now, They'll talk about their methodology, right? If I'm a toxicologist, you know, this is the mass spec that I used and so on and so forth. And 10 years from now, we're going to have competing statisticians arguing over the assumptions that went into likelihood ratio models, and it's gonna be a disaster. Steve? <laughs> <laughs>
in the course of that remark, it was mentioned that you know, the assumptions that you make are going to have a huge influence on the result you're producing. And I don't know that we can make that uh, articulation across the board in every scenario. The perspective that Hari and I have come to is it's important to try to check what is the influence of the assumptions that you're making. And how do you try to do that? You start looking at what result occurs when you make a different set of assumptions. And you try to explore that space. And you may not be able to do so exhaustively, right? We can't fit every possible model that may ever occur to anybody. But you're doing an earnest effort to try to sample from the collection of models that appear reasonable by some criteria. And then you start to articulate what the range of results are. So as Heidi had mentioned, it is maybe unlikely that you're going to have 10 different statisticians march through the door for a particular case, right? But I think over the course of you know, a graduate education and some years of experience, any one statistician has multiple models that show up in their head, and they become more and more familiar as they gain further and further experience. So one person is capable of conducting multiple analyses, and that can serve as the basis of why they have confidence in any one of those results. I tried looking at this from a bunch of different ways, and they gave this collection. Right? And I can't say that if you tried something else, you wouldn't get a different answer beyond what I've seen. But you know, I tried to look at this from multiple ways, not just one. And that is the basis uh, that I can present for somebody to establish their own, their own perception of the reliability of the likelihood ratio assessment in this instance. So it's a need for considering, I call that as modeling uncertainty. Uh, and under a purely Bayesian paradigm, you know, the uh, analyst would then incorporate their own uncertainty over model and do an integral over it and get some sort of weighted average result. Uh, and come back with a single number, and that, that is consistent for Bayes' rule, but it still misses the component of the model uncertainty for establishing the reliability of that result. There's other weights you could have given to that class of models. There's other definitions for what classes of models you'll consider. And so there's, there's a need to try to take different viewpoints and start considering what the range of results are from those as a means of establishing confidence. I'll ask you, but I'm actually asking Daniel, is there a generalizable validation approach, as he has suggested, that can be used to put some rationality on top of, of that so that we have some common language by which we determine whether a model is valid or not? Daniel, I mean, how generalizable is what you did with the ICPMS data of, of was GLASS as a method to validate a variety of different statistical models? Well, uh, the guideline that we have proposed with the NFI for validating uh, likelihood ratios is uh, concentrated in a very particular framework, which is the Bayesian framework of obtaining weight of the evidence. So if you compute a likelihood ratio or a base factor, and you go and try to see whether your base factor, your likelihood ratio is good or not, you can use that. Otherwise, if you use anything else, then you cannot use that. Because it's a validation framework for likelihood ratio method. I would like to add that, in my opinion, we are starting something. We have been discussing this for years, but it is, of course, uh, obvious that we are not going to a point yet. I hope we will get into a future point. But under this initial stage of how to measure the weight of the evidence using methods, I believe in the Bayesian framework. But on this, uh, it is extremely important to get into uh, something that is theoretically valid also, not only empirically valid. 
So one of the things that we recommend in our guideline is, okay, before going into empirical validation, it is necessary, strictly necessary, to go into the theoretical validation and the theoretical underpinnings and the whole stuff. And, and this, this is all about the discussions we already had here before this panel and also in this panel. These concerns about this kind of model and this kind of model are strictly necessary before we go into empirical validation. So empirical validation is not a magic one that solves everything. There are a lot of things and work to do in order to uh, get into the point where we are comfortable with, with our theoretical models as a community. So I also wanted to uh, bring back in the first component of the, the remark that uh, was offered, it had talked about, or you mentioned being convinced that using scores is throwing away too much information and that this just won't be uh, a very uh, feasible approach or uh, a good pathway to pursue. I think that may also be a premature conclusion in the sense that we want to use whatever works best, and I think that's the bottom line. And if somebody approaches uh, an effective uh, separation from known instances of true mates versus known instances of true non-mates, right, we would want to focus on it. We don't want to use something that is less effective in that regard. There's still yet a question of what should the interpretation of a particular result from that system be. But, so two points to this. One is the likelihood ratio itself is a one-dimensional result. It is an ordering, it's a score. And if you have the actual LR, uh, we're not gonna come back and start saying, oh, this is ineffective because it's in one dimension. The other part was, if you have a bunch of information you're overlooking, right, then that starts to affect the performance of using that system. And if somebody has a better way to incorporate additional information, then they would propose a candidate method for accounting for that, and then you would check, does this work better? Right, so it's not that at any point you can say, I have exhausted all the information that ever somebody might consider. It's, I have a particular pathway of processing information and now I'm assessing how well does that work. And at all times, I'm trying to stick with the one that works best. And it's not to the exclusion of any future improvement. So it's not a promise that you've incorporated all the information that anybody might yet incorporate. It's a, of the things that we've thought to try, this is the one that's worked best and that's, that's where we're starting from. I don't think by default to say, well, if it's something first transferred to a one-dimensional system too early, that that should be the principle for eliminating something from consideration. I really want to see the instances where you are able to assess how well this works, which thing works best. This view, I, th I think it applies to everything. For example, I have been working long time during, during the last 10 years in glass analysis with scanning electron microscopes. You, you obtain a performance that is far from the performance that you obtain from LACPMS, for example. Very far. But if you were able to compute a likelihood ratio with scanning electron microscope, and it changes into LACPMS, were any of this likelihood ratio wrong before LACPMS was uh, developed? We were doing uh, worse, but we weren't doing wrong. So there's an improvement in technology, and the models change because the data change and the paradigm change in that sense. This comes to the, to the question also that we have five experts testifying five different things. Is that really wrong? That's my question because probably they must uh, do that way. They, they must testify different things because they are analyzing the evidence in different ways. Yeah, I think you need to understand the, the physics when you develop these models. I mean, what you point out is very fundamental there. Because I hope very much that your likelihood ratios reflect the fact that SEM, when you're looking at energy dispersive analysis, I assume you're looking at, is 
much inferior to laser ablation ICPMS, right? So you should be much stronger set of information from the latter than you had from the former. Is that what you came up with, or don't, or don't we have that information yet? What I say is that if the amount of information changes because our model was not considered before, or because technology increases, we yeah. must incorporate that into our model. And that will lead to a different weight of the evidence. And this is not wrong. This is okay. So two different experts might testify different likelihood ratios or different base factors. If they are analyzing the evidence in, in different ways, they are making the model selection in different ways or making their information extraction in different ways. The point here for me is are they performing appropriately in terms of reliability? That is strongly related with the concept of calibration. Sure. Are they calibrating their opinion? If they are calibrating their opinion, in my view, they will be able to add some information. Of course, the expert that uses LICPMS will give much more information than the expert that uses scanning electron microscopes. But both of them are able to add information to the decision process. And additionally, one can calculate that rate of misleading evidence, as Daniel showed at his presentation. You can get a rate of misleading evidence for one technique where you have you know, some information, and then you can get a different rate of misleading evidence for another technique. It's not exactly an error rate, but it's something that provides the trier of fact with some background about our understanding and what we know and the performance of this model. Harry. Just to avoid people from misunderstanding what my actual position is, I want to make it clear I'm probably the uh, world's most strongest believer in Bayesian thinking. Okay, So I believe in the Bayesian thinking. It's no problem. And that's how I make my decisions on a daily basis, even when I cross the street. I do a quick update. I think the likelihood ratio framework is a very important framework. And each person should use the likelihood ratio framework to make their own decisions. Now, the issue is recognizing that each person's allowed to have their own likelihood ratios, and they often do. How do you communicate what evidence is without including in, in it your personal components of how you come up with that assessment, the weight of evidence? So that's the concern that I have. Sure. You know, one of the dangers of working near Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, is that sometimes when you go out for a walk at, in, in the evening from your home, you come across world-famous statisticians. In this case, I came across Cedric Newman uh, about six months ago in the summer. He happened to have been visiting the National Institute of Statistical Sciences, which is around the corner. I said, hey, Cedric, how's it going? And Cedric actually that night was very depressed, very cynical, and he was like, I don't know, John, I think all this might be pointless. <laughs> the people in the room can visualize this moment. You've sometimes been considered a Bayesian, Cedric, sometimes. You said yesterday you were neutral. So is it possible that the only way in which we want to actually be able to rigorously apply statistics is when we have such great frequency data with DNA that the problems are simple and that these multi-dimensional problems may just not be amenable to the kind of uh, Bayesian analysis that we would like. Is the question for me? It is for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so next time I meet an ex-government official on a street corner <laughs> in North Carolina, I will have a disclaimer <laughs> that nothing can be held against me in the future. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, okay, so there's several things. The, I think that if you claim that you want, to, and I disagree with Harry on that, I think if you 
if you claim that you want to use a Bayesian framework to update your prior belief into your posterior belief, you need to use a proper base factor, and you can't build that base factor any which way you want using scores and things like that. Now, if you want to build some form of system that can give you some form of answer, and that looks like a likelihood ratio, and then you claim that this is a likelihood ratio framework, like Harry just did, then why not? And then you can test the performance of that system, and I mean, I wouldn't call that a base factor, I wouldn't call that Bayesian reasoning, I would just call that having a system that provides some quantitative information. To answer the second part of the question, I don't think that Bayesian reasoning is something that you, you can do without data. You clearly need a lot of data to, to build those models and things like that, so I'm not sure where you're coming from that well, the question was, is it possible to build those models, or, or, do, well, or mean, can you do Bayesian reasoning without data? Or? We might be better off with the imperfect fingerprint examiner making their qualitative decisions that may not be considered rigorously scientific by some, as Dr. Biederman mentioned, but at least it's clear. And we don't have errors in the system as a reason. We don't have system errors. Right, well, when we have fingerprint examiners. Very few exonerations, post-conviction exonerations, have to do with fingerprint examination that was incorrect. So maybe we're better off with that as opposed to trying to come up with these statistical frameworks that might have difficulties, analytical difficulties of this sort that might be difficult to, to truly come up with an objective answer to. A human examiner is a system that provides some form of quantitative assessment, right? And then if the human tells you it's an identification versus an exclusion, ultimately you can test that system, and that's what the black box did. So I have not a particularly, I mean, I understand what Alex said, and I agree with what Alex said, but mm -hmm. yeah. if there is a strong push and belief that the, the trial fact understand categorical conclusion a lot better than Bayesian, I don't necessarily have a big problem of going through that process and having a formal testing of error rate. I mean, and I'm not exactly sure how I would design that study, and I, you know, I heard what Austin said last week at some error rate symposium. But ultimately, you can test that, right? I, I think ultimately, the global issue that we also discussed before is an issue of transparency and documentation. And it's the exact same issue that we already have now without any statistics. If you have two latent print examiner or two forensic chemists or firearm examiner that have properly well-documented notes of the analysis and can tell you I use these features to make my decision and I use these features in this particular way because I believe this and this and this about this feature and about fingerprint distortion, about uh, the wear of barrels or whatever you want, then you can start discussing it. And then you can have another expert that tells you, I didn't use all of these features, but I used some of these and then some extra features, and this is why I reached a different conclusion. And you can start discussing. Now we have, at the current situation, we usually have expert witnesses that go to court and say, well, this is my conclusion, and you need to trust me. And then the other one say, well, I disagree, and you need to trust me. Well, okay. And I think that statistician eventually is going to be the same thing. So like, you may end up going to court with some form of quantitative support, whether it's a base factor or something else, but then you can say, I've run that particular 
experiment. I've designed that model. This is why I did it. And then maybe some other statistician will discuss something else. And as Ari was mentioning yesterday in private conversation, sorry, I push you under the bus, but at least it's like the same, the, the, the two examiner. You can at least discuss on what you agree on, you know, and then start discussing on what you disagree on and why so maybe those disagreements reach diverge conclusion. But. Hi, Henry Swafford. Cedric, I think you were just touching on, on the root of my question. I've seen many of you guys present at a number of different venues, and uh, fortunately, I'm able to follow about 1% of what you, what you say. <laughs> but I know that the rest of the forensic community is probably struggling to keep up with one one thousandth of a percent of that. And so what I find every time I go back to um, my laboratory and engage in other, with other colleagues and as a practitioners, they honestly are trying to find what is a way forward. How can we overcome these challenges? We often get portrayed as defensively responding to these reports. Sometimes we do. We just knee-jerk response. But I think a bigger issue is, is that we're struggling to understand this concept of Bayesian, this concept of frequentist, this concept of base factor and how it differs from likelihood ratio and all of this stuff. And okay, it's simplistic to do score-based approaches, but wait a second, Dr. Newman said, um, dismiss this with prejudice and even bolded and italicized it. He might as well have underlined it as well. So, <laughs> so my takeaway is, okay, Bayesian is good, but Bayesian is crap. <laughs> Score-based are good or easy, practical. Nope, nope, can't do that. Okay, so I'm left with identification. Oh, nope, what's the cost of that? So what would you propose as a step forward? It may not be optimal, it may not be the best, but we are in a critical point in forensic sciences today as practitioners where we are trying to stay above water. And the water line is starting to, is already over our mouth and is starting to get to our nostrils. What would you propose as a practical way forward for the first step? So first, again, I repeat, I am not against score-based system. I am against using score-based system in a Bayesian framework. Okay, you can use your score-based system, fine. Don't claim you're using a Bayesian framework at the same time, because that's not compatible. The second thing to what's the next step? I think the next step, again, is the next step is documentation and transparency and training. If an examiner goes to court and says, I've made an identification, and I can tell you why I made the identification, I can tell you about my background and experience. I can tell you about what prior belief I had starting with the examination. I can tell you about my assessment of the probability of observing this feature, given what I know about finger distortion, given what I know about the finger of the, the, the putative source, given what I know about chemical development process. And then I can tell you about the probability of observing this feature, given what I know about fingerprint, the appearance of friction-rich skin in the womb of the mother, and so on and so on. And this is how this affected my prior belief. And then I have so much information here that the cost of making an error in that particular case was so low that I decided to reach an identification. Here I've never put any number of that, right? But I've used Alex's decision theoretic model, and I can talk about it, then I don't have a problem with that. 
And then on top of that, you have the black box study and so on. But I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but the, the community need to realize that there will be some training involved. And then we can start moving down and you know, talk about mathematics and things like that. But yeah, that, that, would, that would be my first step. Steve. A first step to me would if the, if the system stops trying to find meaning from the result reported itself, the result in isolation, right? So there's the statement of something like, I've reached an identification, right? And so that means, you know, to that person, I'm convinced that this was the source of the latent. But then to the audience, they want to they know, okay, so that person is convinced, but should I be convinced? And that can't come from the output of whatever the process of evaluation is, an algorithm or a person, in isolation. I need to be able to see what happened when this same system was applied elsewhere, right? And so that's what the black box is trying to inform, right? And so having critical as part of a presentation to what information do we have about the performance of this this approach, whether it's human interpretation or algorithmic in other instances, and having that be you know, the basis of establishing meaning for the result rather than the literal uh, interpretation of the result in isolation. The point I kind of wanted to make was the question that was asked is how do we express our results in a way that the jurors can understand us? And the answer is, right now, there is, I see no answer right here to make it simple. Obviously, in particular, since we're discussing these different approaches and how we use, let's say, modern statistics, it's complex and it takes a lot. But the basic way that we're going to have the jurors understand the information that we're trying to explain based on the evidence is, what I consider the KISS method, keep it simple. I don't like the last term so much. Because, you know, we're all fairly intelligent people here, and some of us are having difficulty understanding these propositions that people are making. But I think the good news is we're discussing these issues, and we're discussing these various approaches. And not each one of the types of evidence that we're going to be dealing with will have one specific approach. It has to be looked at. And the good news, again, is we're beginning to realize that we have to seriously look at these things. And we've got to discuss them. And we've got to test our hypotheses or whatever based on empirical testing evidence. And one thing may resolve one type of evidence and not the other. But anyway, in the end, it's still we're scientists trying to get a good grasp on how to explain these things so that triers of fact or jurors can make reasonable decisions as to whether or not somebody is guilty based on the evidence. Anyway, in the end, it still could be complex. Our court system, how we express this evidence and how we really evaluate what is there, I think needs to be looked at in another way. You know, when we're talking about prosecution versus defense. And to try to resolve that problem in front of a bunch of jurors is a really, really difficult thing. And possibly, and this is just a thought I've had in my mind, maybe the debate should have gone on between scientists well in advance, well published, and well known, and the specific case may well have been debated out looking at reports and so forth. So and 
have a decision or at least a decision. So, Ed, uh, so anyway, I'm great being... Point, and it's a segue to this afternoon's session. We're going to have another session this afternoon. And I'm going to have give the panel another opportunity to respond. Alex, did you want to have the last word here related to this or no? Cedric? No? I just want to say one last thing is we did some NIST study a few years ago. And the problem we are facing here as a community, which is quantifying the evidence and presenting the evidence, is the exact same problem that they have in military decision-making, political decision-making, medical decision-making, environmental decision-making. Let's not be too scared that we have this problem, because at the end of the day, it's a really, really, really global problem how to present information to some decision-maker. And that's not just us. Lots of food for thought. With that, I think we'll end. Let's thank the entire panel. Next week's Just Science release will be another special episode of a panel that was recorded live at IPDES titled Statistics and Testimony from the Practitioner and Juror Point of View, moderated by Zhao Alan Zhang from the National Institute of Standards and Technology and Dr. John Morgan from RTI International. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.